Welcome to this BJSM podcast, and I'm with Dr. Andy Franklin Miller, who's at the Sports Surgery Clinic in Dublin. He was previously at the Defence Medical Rehabilitation Centre at Headley Court, and he's well known in the field for his management of running injuries. And we're going to focus on lower leg injuries today in particular, but we hope to have a future podcast on groin problems. Andy, thanks for joining the podcast today. Karim, great to talk to you and good to be back. And many of you will know Dr. Franklin Miller from um, Twitter and his blog. And just to get that up early, his Twitter account is at A. Franklin Miller. That's A for Andy Franklin Miller, one word. And he has a terrific blog and um, Dr. Andy Franklin Miller blog. So you've been sharing a lot of messages that have been very popular. And I know you've really been focusing on running injuries the last year or so, Andy. Tell us about that. I look, Karim, just uh, really over the last 18 months since I was the Director of Research at the Defence Medical Rehab Centre, we were seeing large numbers of of patients presenting with exertional lower limb pain, so much so that we were really doing upwards of 400 um, compartmental pressure measurements a year and uh, began really amongst the clinicians there to doubt whether or not uh, there was real substance or real pathology behind the diagnosis. And indeed, we, we carried out a systematic re- review as background to this with a great researcher, Andy Roberts, there, um, which really found significant crossover between the existing Pedowitz criteria, many of our uh, listeners will, will know well, and started to, to be more concerned. And so we wrote a, an editorial uh, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, really questioning the diagnosis, detailing some of the history, and, and defining a diagnosis as biomechanical overload syndrome. And really, over the last 18 months, I guess what I've really done is, is seen somewhere between seven and 800 patients with, with uh, exertional lower limb pain and knee pain, foot pain at the clinic here in the sports surgery clinic, and really had a chance to put many of those theories into practice. And what have you discovered that people haven't appreciated before? It's very easy to, to compare the histories across all of these conditions, and the histories present very much in, in the same way in that uh, they tend to be chronic. They, they come on with crescendo-type pain across the foot. Many times they stop the, the patient running um, with various other symptoms which are seeming less significant of changes in color and, um, and foot drop and pins and needles. But we've been looking at our, our patients using 2D kinematics, so it really is just video and slow motion video and part of the research we're doing looks at a more formal two-dimensional two-camera approach but we're also using the uh, Dartfish app and iPads with AirPlay just to really give some immediate feedback in the bigger picture of work that we're doing. You know there's been a big debate in terms of of whether you can change using kinematics uh, the way someone runs and so look if I just run through for example someone presenting with anterior shin pain many of the things that we see would make sense. So we know that Diebel wrote a paper looking at changing someone from a rear foot to a forefoot could alleviate the symptoms. And if you think for a moment about that initial grand contact, just by reducing the amount of dorsiflexion um, before the initial contact, we can reduce the preload, so that stretch contract cycle of the tibialis anterior. And in anterior compartment type syndrome, this is where most of the pain's felt. So if we reduce the preload on that muscle, we found that we can significantly reduce the symptom profile of the patients, really adding to the question over whether this truly is a, a condition or whether it's just a muscle overload. And so coaching point one really is to, to try to use more of a midfoot landing. 
Um, it doesn't really matter whether it's slightly forefoot or slightly rear foot, but certainly to reduce that outstretched tibia in front of the center of mass. And we do that via another couple of coaching cues. If we increase the cadence, something that's commonly talked about in, on, on Twitter and also in many of the, the uh, bedroom uh, biomechanists that are around, um, we find by reducing that stride length in order to increase the cadence, it helps reduce that dorsiflexion. So really they're com common themes. And, and in order to try to emphasize the fact that the stride's shorter and there should be a more positive contact with the ground, in order to get that increased hip extension, one of the coaching cues we use is to initially focus on just trying to increase the amount of hip flexion, which therefore, by that wonderful Newton's law, we have to have a reaction and therefore they have to create more hip extension. And so one of the things that, um, that we've been concerned about really is by changing the kinematics, um, what we do in terms of force. And, and so there are one or two good studies that have looked at more recently, really, what happened with a kinetic and a kinematic view. And so I guess if we separate those out for listeners who are less familiar, the, the kinematics is really the joint angle and the changes in joint angle that we've been talking about. So reduced dorsiflexion, less knee flexion, more hip flexion, and therefore extension. The kinetics is more about actual force and the relationship between ground reaction force. There was an excellent paper in Gait and Posture earlier in the year from Taiwan that looked at the question of whether foot strike was more important than running in barefoot shoes or normal traditional running shoes. And they took 12 patients and looked at the kinematics and the kinetics, so both of these components, but really found that you could teach someone to run with a four-foot strike in barefoot shoes or a four-foot strike in rear-foot shoes. It really made little difference but found that the rate of loading, the forces across the ankle, were significantly higher in rear foot loading. Now, the question that's commonly been debated, therefore, is, well, should we forefoot or should we midfoot strike in order to reduce the forces about the ankle? But it misunderstands the concept of the kinetic chain, insofar as if we change the forces at the ankle, those forces have to go somewhere, either to the knee or the hip. The ground reaction force, more or less, is the same if you don't change any of the other factors. And so we're gradually changing the kinematics so actually the patient can adapt over a longer term. And one of the things that we find in our patients is that as we change the cadence and change the position of which they, they place their foot before running, they often get very tired. And actually, I think we've, we've learned, and there's been one or two papers very recently that have looked to see at what the, the metabolic load of changing running technique is. And certainly, it's difficult. They feel the gluteal muscles are working more on the hip flexor initially, and actually running at a higher cadence it takes more out of them. And so by progressively changing that over a walk-to-run program, so typically we would use a program where after we'd made a change, a patient would go out and run only for one minute in five, thinking of a different coaching cue each time um, and gradually build that up over two, two weeks so that we can gradually adapt to that difference in metabolic load uh, rather than trying to make things change very suddenly. And I guess one thing to focus on here is that these are patients presenting with shin or calf pain or anterior knee pain that we're trying to address the kinematics on. These aren't runners who are looking for a performance element, which I think is completely different. Andy, Let's go through and illustrate that with one case that comes to mind of a patient you've seen like this in your clinic. So walk the listener through someone who comes in and says, I've got medial shin pain. 
every consultation starts with, as any other consultation, a history and an examination. And we do that combined. So one of our running physios, John Foster, uh, and myself would see the patient together. We'll take a very detailed history, really of training volume, um, shoe history, actually how many sessions on a track versus a hill or sand. We, commonly because Dublin's on the coast, there's, there's people who will spend a lot of time running on sand or may have changed with a running club there training program. So I think that's one of the most important things. Um, and then there's often very little to find on physical examination. I think one of the big things we're trying to rule out commonly is stress response or a stress fracture. Again, very common in recreational runners building up their mileage to the first marathon or, or first ultra marathon. And so commonly we would carry out an MRI scan of the shin just to exclude that. Was there any clinical suspicion? One of the common things that we find in terms of medial shin pain and posterior calf pain is really either one of two extremes in terms of the ankle dorsiflexion range. So weight-bearing dorsiflexion, very common uh, thing to see either very tight in terms of a tight posterior calf structure uh, or indeed the other way in reduced load and medial tibial pain certainly we would see more commonly increased dorsiflexion, a good knee to wall in weight bearing. Once we've really got an idea of where they're at in terms of have they had orthoses, what are the interventions have they had, we'll put them onto the treadmill and we take two views at a self-selected pace initially, um, a sagittal and a rear view, um, really whole body and the approach really is from the head down, um, taking captures at various different speeds when, when the patient's comfortable with use on the treadmill. And I look, I think the thing to say here is that um, the danger is that we medicalize the symptom. I, I think the, the concept of biomechanical overload is really that we're asking a muscle to do too much work. The glute muscles, the hip flexors are all big, large muscle groups, whereas the tibialis anterior, the tibialis posterior are all very small muscles. But I think the mechanism here is the muscles just being asked to do too much. And so trying to demedicalize it almost, the things that we're focusing on are really coaching cues. And so we're looking to find a common ground. It's not so much formulaic, so it's not a tick box exercise of making someone run a particular way. And, and actually many of, of the concepts we would pick and choose from the existing research. It's not a method like chi running or pose running that applies a set of principles. It's really adapting to the patient. So from our point of view, there's no point in coaching an upright body if the patient already has an upright body or only a very slight forward lean. Um, so we usually start in terms of the proximal um, uh, hip flexor and, and would start to increase with this medial tibial pain uh, really a much more of a, a positive action in terms of a downward foot strike. So really trying to actually connect with the ground more than but it would depend specifically on what we were seeing. So in this patient let's assume for a second that they're a rear foot striker with a reasonable tibial angle so they're not stretching themselves out too much but they've got a lot of knee flexion. So they're running with a very bouncy gait, a typical sort of recreational style runner um, with a little bit of forward lean in the body and not much in the way of hip extension. And looking from the rear, again, with medial tibial pain, we commonly see a very rapid rate of pronation. Now, if you look at that just purely at the foot, you may start to think, well, is there a need for orthoses or is there a need for a specialist shoe? We might touch on that later, but, but for now, we're really going to focus on the coaching cues. And so the coaching cues in this case would initially be to think about increasing the amount of hip flexion, so to lift the hip or to lift the thigh a little more positively and increase the step rate, maybe trying one or two steps more 
um, per cycle, just to try to increase the pace of cadence to, to try to give more of a downward ground reaction force. One of the other comments here really would be to try to increase the stiffness of the knee. What we see in medial tibial pain is an awful lot of load on tibialis posterior, and that commonly associated with a very flexible weight-bearing dorsiflexion results in this spongy-style knee flexion during the stance phase. And so we're focusing on asking the patient really to concentrate about moving the hip and driving the leg into the ground, but at the same time focusing less on allowing the flexion to be taken up at the knee, and so running with a stiff knee um, and then moving down to the last part here, really thinking about the foot position. And as we suggested earlier, by increasing the cadence, increasing the downward um, contact, often the patient by this stage has moved away from that very pronounced rear foot into a midfoot strike. And looking from behind, we then lose that very rapid rate of pronation, almost as an effect rather than a cause. And so then, try to summarize that very quickly, we're very careful across an hour just to really introduce one cue at a time and focus on it. And those coaching triggers are really something that we don't have as sports physicians and physiotherapists, strength and conditioning coaches particularly. It's not part of our training set, that coaching methodology, the cues, the physical cues. And so we're using video feedback almost consistently, and the patient goes away with files or folders either on Dartfish or, on, or by email or Dropbox to sort of use as references. Um, but I think it's very important the patient can see live the things that you're trying to coach. Um, different people work very well with different patients, and so we've got a wide team of, of re-educators or, or running coaches or or strength and condition coaches, that can vary the approach dependent on the patient. And so often the way one words the, the, the trigger can, uh, can create a significantly different response. But the end result is the same. We're trying to change the kinematics. Now, we'll change the kinetics as we go, but it's just gradually changing those joint angles and the way someone runs gradually across a two-week period afterwards. So they'll go away with three cues, probably at most, and a walk-to-run program, as I described earlier. And we'd see them a week, so a week or two weeks later just for a quick five-minute check on the treadmill to just check on the maintenance of those cues. And that's one area we're really keen to, to look at more in depth in research. And we're looking um, in partnership with a, a company in Finland called RunTech who really have a device which can allow us to try to measure compliance with an app in terms of the movement changes and the cadence and change in foot position very exciting. It's not quite there in terms of technology yet, but we really don't know how well our patients retain these cues when they leave the clinic. Andy, for those who are not familiar with dartfish, um, we're not talking about the saltwater fish, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. We're, uh, we're talking about the app. So um, there are many, many other variants out there. We use Dartfish because we use Dartfish clinic-wide in all of our rehabilitation. There's a great app that you can download for free on your iPhone or iPad and can give slow-motion replay uh, almost immediately. We like it because we can store the clips on a Dartfish TV account, and more importantly, from the iPads, we can broadcast large screens with AirPlay so that the patients can see both in terms of on the treadmill, but also a lot of our focus is on posterior chain conditioning off the treadmill and truly really get muscles strong. A lot of that work in the gym and also our running drills in a multi-directional area 
can be broadcast to the patients. So I think those two things in terms of coaching and video feedback, but also that stage progression of, of cues, again, integral to our, into, integral our, our approach. And, um, and many of our strength and conditioning team and, and coaches are, are really follow the sort of the Nick, Nick Winkleman uh, athlete performance model and have, have done those courses in terms of trying to upskill our team in, in delivering coaching alongside the sort of medical and conditioning feedback. And that's exactly the sort of practical advice we're looking for on these podcasts. And before we move on to shoe shop um, assessment for runners, if someone is listening, they're running a clinic, um, they don't have masses of capital to invest, but they're dealing with runners, what would be the sort of minimal infrastructure that you think people would need to do a better job of assessing runners to take these sort of biomechanical issues into account? Um, okay, so yeah, look, we, we had the same issues uh, when we set up the running clinic here 18 months ago and trying to identify which bit of kit and many of the podiatry forums were useful sources of advice. Um, we use in our permanent setup a, a system called Contemplast with two Panasonic HD cameras with permanent cabling and additional lighting with reference boards. But for, for day-to-day running re-education and analysis, really all you need is a treadmill, an iPad or an iPhone and, and the, a Dartfish app and, or even one of the other apps. It's really the case of being able to give the patient immediate video feedback from those coaching cues. That is the critical thing here. The actual analysis of angles and the changes of, of, of subtle technique is really not always essential. For the higher speed capture of slow motion foot movement, the uh, the Dartfish uh, app is limited only by the, the ability of the camera, and so the technology hasn't quite caught up. And so the fixed setup is very, very much more useful in the detailed work. But for many of these changes, we're talking about in terms of cadence, stride length, hip and knee flexion, torso angle. They're all the things that you can see with the uh, with an iPhone or an iPad. And really, I would encourage people to do this in terms of experimenting along these lines of of, of coaching changes. Just one sort of article that we can direct listeners to from our SoundCloud page was this idea of Mo Farah's um, running secret success. And I know you know the paper from the, the article from The Telegraph. Um, just want to sort of illustrate the key points of what you think a runner like Mo Farah does well and what we can learn from someone like that. Sure. And, and, and look, you could almost apply this argument to, to any high-quality runner. They have, to an extent, an individualized technique. And so they've learned to adapt, to an extent, some of their own biomechanical limitations. There's never one perfect technique. But in terms of that power transfer of tension through the hamstring into the ground and being able to capture the ground reaction force vertically, that's where power comes from. And actually, it's the glide time in the air where you cover the ground faster per stride that you get speed. And so actually having that degree of plyometric load and strength from the glutes, the hamstring to the calf is really the most important factor in terms of this. And being able to apply that with a rapid rate um, in a very vertical reaction um, from the ground reaction force without wasting any energy in terms of the braking moment uh, is one of the things there that really allows that transfer of all of the metabolic uh, energy that he's using or any high-level runner is using uh, in terms of forward propulsion. Commonly, many of our patients, when, uh, when they start in terms of modifying the way they run, they tell me that they, they're exhausted, it's very, very tiring, but also that they can't see how they'll be able to run fast. 
And actually, the, it's a misconception that by changing your cadence or your stride length, um, that you're, you're limited. People sort of imagine, well, I can't keep increasing my cadence um, in order to be able to go faster. And actually, a lot of the comments in terms of whether a sub-two-hour marathon is possible, Ross Tucker, you know, is, is, is being very vocal on this. Uh, one of those determinants, aside from the muscle metabolic load, is actually the, the, the power-to-weight ratio that's possible in terms of that posterior chain to maximize that glide phase or the aerial part of, of covering that stride. Andy, last thing. People get a lot of advice about buying shoes. Some shoe shops have treadmills for assessing people. What do you suggest? Uh, look, you, you know, shoe shops and and places selling shoes off the back of, of treadmill analysis, um, really, they're a, it's, a, it's a mixed message. They're clearly trying to do their best and put put someone into a shoe that's that's appropriate for them. But but look, there have been two good papers that have looked at simple kinematic changes that would affect immediately that, that um, foot position. Uh, Rosebaum talked about changing the cue of toe in to toe out, and you can change the load patterns in the foot by 40% just by changing the angle of the toe in terms of running forward. And you or I could, could imagine trying on a pair of shoes and just being focused with a camera on the, on the foot. It's going to change the way in terms of an immediate feedback cue how you run. It doesn't make a difference in terms of your overall kinematics. And as I was saying earlier, the big muscles, the proximal muscles, the glutes, the, uh, they're controlling the hip femoral rotation. They're controlling really what happens at the foot. So the first mistake, I guess, is to focus in on the foot and look only at the foot. Um, and secondly, we know from, from Stacey Meerden's work that just changing the width, the step width, the stance width, can dramatically change the, the activity of ITB and glute, but also the rate of foot pronation. So I'd say if someone's looking at you running, they really need to be looking at you running from head to toe rather than foot down. And really, that's, that's I think, an important message. One view is enough. One view from the side, then walking around and looking at the, uh, the sagittal view again would be, would be fine. You don't need 3D. You don't need two cameras necessarily simultaneously. The trick here is that um, the shoe ultimately doesn't matter. You could run in Wellington boots for, for eye care if they fit your foot. Um, there's so much pseudoscience being developed um, in with small studies trying to demonstrate a hypothesis with very narrow window. Um, you need to look at fit flops to look at that. That um, you know the uh, the consumer really needs to focus on how they run rather than what's on their feet. That's a good practical tip, Andy. And moving forward, what research plans do you have up your sleeve? Well, look, I think the important thing here is we try and standardize a little bit of the approach because we're seeing, we're lucky to see a large number of patients here in Dublin, but people are seeing large numbers of patients all around the, the world. And with um, Christian Barton and Hilton Menz out with La Trobe University, we're just about to start two projects in terms of a sort of a global approach to running re-education. Um, and also ourselves here at the Sports Surgery Clinic looking with RunTech at this compliance ability to, to maintain running kinematics. Um, but really, I would encourage everyone to, uh, to, to take on this um, kinematic change approach uh, and really see what we can do in terms of a rehabilitation of, uh, of these injuries. Andy, thanks for your time today. A pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Andy Franklin Miller. He's known as the running doctor, among other things. And um, you'll find lots of resources through his blog, Dr. Andy Franklin Miller blog. That'll point you to his Twitter account. A. Franklin Miller and he has great podcasts as well as a subscription email newsletter so terrific resources there from Andy Franklin Miller 
Thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast. You'll find over 100 podcasts from BJSM on SoundCloud. And if you follow us on Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ, we'll try and keep you abreast of the latest advances in sports medicine. Thanks for listening.